Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Picnic at Hanging Rock. Picnic at Hanging Rock was written by Joan Lindsay and was published in 1967. And the film adaptation, directed by Peter Weir, came out in 1975. And this is a patron-requested episode. Our patron, John, asked us to do this episode. And we're always really excited to do a patron-requested episode, so this is fun. Yeah, especially this one. Uh, I... I'm not I was not familiar with this story at all. I don't I feel like I've never even heard of it before no, this. Um, but apparently it is a uh, I mean, it's a pretty famous Australian novel yeah. uh, and film as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was super interesting and exciting to read. And especially just because it was our first introduction to it. Yeah. And I think it was pretty popular in the United States as well. Mm-hmm. Although like Ian and I having not been around for that this time and also we're not as great about being caught up with like classic films either. No. Um, so yeah, really cool to read something that is considered a classic and watch a film that's also really considered a classic as well. So thank you to John for putting this on our radar because it's definitely an episode that we might not have picked on our own, but exciting to do something a little different. Yeah. It's also worth mentioning. There was a 2018 miniseries adaptation of this story as well. Yeah. I think BBC did Mm -hmm. it, but yeah, no, we, we decided to go with the original adaptation of this story for this episode. Yeah. But I am interested to see the miniseries at some point. Yeah. And I think it takes it in kind of a different direction from what I've read. Yeah. From what I've read, uh, synopses wise, like it is, there are, noticeable differences so Mm -hmm. and so this story takes place in the year 1900 in australia and we're still in the victorian era technically at this time and so we really get like this very british focused story like it's all about these british people that are living in australia Mm -hmm. and the story begins in a very interesting way which is basically saying that like All of this is true. Yeah. Uh, The book actually kind of phrases it in a kind of interesting, kind of like funny way. So I'm just going to read what the book starts out with. It says, whether Picnic at Hanging Rock is fact or fiction, my readers must decide for themselves. As for the fateful picnic took place... As the fateful picnic took place in the year 1900, and all the characters who appear in this book are long since dead, it hardly seems important. (laughs) (laughs) So she's kind of like, maybe it's true, maybe it's not, who cares? I'm not telling. (laughs) Yeah, I kind of love that kind of, it almost being like on the nose about like, it not being real. Yeah. Uh, But a lot of people really did believe this story and still believe this story. Mm -hmm. And the movie has a similar beginning where it kind of has like a title card about these girls that went missing in this picnic in this. Yeah. There's a really good video I watched. It's like an hour long kind of video essay about the book. And uh, he did kind of talk about, there were certain people that were named after real life people. Okay. There was like a, um, there was a school near there that the author had actually uh, gone to when Mm -hmm. they were younger and at one point, I think it was maybe after the author had been there, uh, there was a group of kids that, like went hanging rock and kind of like got stuck there overnight okay. or something like that. And in mm-hmm. fact, a teacher who was with them was named Miss McCraw. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So like the person in the video is like, clearly there are like 
some kind of little bits of factual kind of information kind of thrown in there. But like as a whole, this story is like completely fictional. Yeah, but it does make for a very interesting setup. Yeah, yeah. And so it's this group of girls that is at this college and it's called a college, but it really in our American understanding of the word, it's just like a high school, like I'm a guessing, boarding a school. boarding school. Yeah. yeah. Like the girls live there. Um, obviously it's Victorian times, so things are very different. And, but like, it's interesting because the school seems very traditionally British mm-hmm. um, and Victorian, but they're in the middle of this like Australian kind of wilderness as well. Yeah. The, um, it's kind of like this big like plantation mansion that they like live in like the book kind of describes like it's kind of not an anomaly architecturally in the country but like some of these had kind of like cropped up here and there and like the person who built it only lived there a couple years before moving and then it was like then it became this boarding school yeah and so we have a pretty big cast of characters right away between the girls at this school and the teachers there um, the headmistress owner of this school, Mrs. Appleyard, uh, we'll probably call her Mrs. A for the most part. <laughs> I, earlier when we were outlining for the episode, accidentally called her Miss Applebottom. And Applebottom and jeans. jeans. <laughs> Adina started laughing. I was like, what? What did I, what did I say? What do you mean? <laughs> Mrs. Applebottom. Yeah, right? <laughs> Boots with the fur. Yeah. It's Appleyard, which is Weird to say. Yeah. Mrs. A is probably better. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. She is the owner. She's very kind of strict, kind of uh, a figure that is not overly warm or compassionate for being like the head of a school. Yeah. Falls in line with like a lot of like classic heads of schools. Especially in British English literature, you know. And we have some other teachers. We have uh, Mademoiselle. Am I saying that right? Mademoiselle. Mademoiselle. They kind of shorten it to yeah. at points, but Mademoiselle or Diane. Diane, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, who is uh, a governess there. And then... Uh, French teacher. French teacher. And then uh, Miss McCraw, who mm-hmm. is like a mathematics teacher. And these are the two uh, adults who are going, or the two women who are going to accompany the group of girls to their picnic at Hanging Rock. Yeah. What could go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> I did like that, you know, the beginning can be a little slow. Yeah. But I think for me personally, at least, for right off the bat, they're like, hey, everyone's getting ready to go to the picnic at Hanging Rock. And I'm like, cool, the inciting incident. And so, like, even though things are kind of slow, it's describing a lot, it's introducing you to a lot of characters. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that you're moving towards... um kind of the critical point. You know something is going to happen. Yeah, and I think that keeps you engaged through these, like, kind of longer periods. So yeah. I personally wasn't, like, bored or anything, um, but it, you know, I think that's a good framework. Yeah, it does have a little bit of a slow start, just because there are so many characters. And it's kind of funny because we meet these girls at the beginning that actually are not that important to the story. Like, they are and they aren't. Yeah. You know, because we meet these three, the three eldest girls at this school um Miranda Marion and Irma <laughs> I know I hate that there's a Miranda and Marion I know because I I always remember Miranda but I can never remember I think I called her in my notes at one time Meredith and Mary <laughs> and like I'm like ah, I can't remember her <laughs> yeah and so like they're the oldest they're very well loved in the school we meet them 
We meet a couple other schoolgirls, most notably a young girl, Sarah, and then a kind of youngerish girl, Edith, as well. Um, but it's kind of funny because as much as we're introduced to them at, at the beginning, like once we get to the part where they're not spoiler in alert, it, they disappear. They disappear. <laughs> like they're just not in it anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but so this whole group, this whole school of girls is going, uh, to Hanging Rock. It's like a three hour trip, I think, via the, um, carriage that they take out there. Yeah. Uh, and they have a carriage driver too, who's mm-hmm. a prominent character, at least early on in the story, Mr. Yeah. Hussey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, they, they all kind of are getting ready. It's, it's Valentine's Day too. So there's yeah. kind of this like buzz of like excitement and like Valentine's and stuff. Uh, but they get all their shit together and they take off. Yeah. Um, and they're like, you know, we're just going to hang out, have a picnic, eat some cake, walk around, sleep in the sun. Like, this sounds perfect, right? Fall into a wormhole. <laughs> 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 it is so funny that, like, this story is so. I think I've heard it described. I don't know the genre term specifically strange fiction. Yeah. Or weird fiction. Mm. Um, where it's kind of like this story focuses on this uh, mystery that's almost science fiction in nature. Yeah. Kind of uh, super bizarre and unanswerable. Uh, but like when you hear the name of this book, and especially if you just look at the cover, which on both of our versions is just like Victorian ladies <laughs> having, having a nice a picnic. picnic yeah. You'd be like, all right. <laughs> you'd just be like, okay. But I mean, if you read the back cover, then you might be like, all right, that sounds a little more interesting. Yeah, I mean, the actual first edition cover of it, I don't know if you've seen it. I did, actually. It has, like, this green, and it's very 70s. It's kind like, of psychedelic. 60s and 70s in style. has this, like, woman on the cover. It's very odd and psychedelic, like you said. It's a much better cover it is. than, like, both versions we have. I know, because it really hints at, like, what the book is actually about. Yeah, so I just think it's really funny that, like, both the name and the covers of our versions, at least, are, like, all right, boring British lady picnic <laughs> party the book (laughs) but it's like so much more than that yeah and let's talk a little bit about hanging rock which is their picnic destination and this is a geologic formation in australia i forget exactly where it is but it's actually an ancient volcano Mm -hmm. that has since eroded and so now it is like kind of in the shape of a volcano but the erosion and the wind and just like time has really turned it into these like almost like pillars. Yeah, kind of these like boulders and rock firm. It looks mm-hmm. like a big pile of boulders, basically. Yeah. It doesn't like there's there's no discernible like mass of it. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting too, because of the way it was formed, it's kind of like in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. There's no like other mountainous formations near it. It's kind of just on its own. There are a couple other like volcanic um protrusions that are like similar to it, but not in scale yeah in the area um and you know the rock is volcanic there's it's really cool because like when you look at it and i love that the the movie filmed it oh yeah you would have to and, and it really just gives you such a sense of place and you feel like you are somewhere um but there's like trees kind of throughout Mm -hmm. so it's not just like this mountain that's just you know there not like this big rock it's very much like you know, you can see trees and brush and like these boulders peeking up and it's just so unique to look at it. Yeah. And I do think the book did a good job of describing a lot of it. Yeah. Um, But even with how good it did when you see it in the film. Yeah. It's just like such a totally different 
uh, experience and gives you a, a, an appreciation for like how alien it almost feels. Yes. And on top of that, I think it's cool, um, you know, as an American, when I think of like, oh, the Australian landscape, I just like only think of uh, the the Red Rock, uh, yes. Uluru. Mm-hmm. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Like in that kind of Desert, desert yeah and like it's like uh, a de- computer desktop background like that's like the first <laughs> yeah. image that hits my brain maybe throw some kangaroos in there <laughs> like I know for me personally like that's like all of Australian landscape like in my own personal brain yeah because I've never really experienced a lot of like uh I have, I've never been there mm-hmm. and not a lot of stories I've seen take place there no so I think it's super cool that to read a book that takes place there and it's so focused on nature and like mm-hmm. the landscape, at least of this specific area. Yeah. Uh, that it just kind of gave me a new appreciation for how diverse and interesting uh, the nature of Australia is. Yeah, because I mean, it's a whole continent, you know? <laughs> I know, it's fucking huge. <laughs> I mean, you could say the same about the United States. You know, you have such different environments and landscapes within one country. Oh, yeah. And the same with Australia, because, you know, it's a huge piece of land and the landscapes are going to be totally different depending on where you are. But I agree. Like, it's cool getting to see somewhere that just feels so solidly centered in a place. Yeah. And it really just gives you such a sense of that and you feel like you're there. Um, And it was so cool to see all these shots of Hanging Rock in the film and to learn more about it from the book as well. So in the book and the film, we kind of get a montage, so to speak, of them enjoying their picnic. They have a heart-shaped Valentine's Day cake, Mm -hmm. a lot of food. I love at one point in the film, there's a, a, a kind of showing the passage of time. Uh, they show a piece of cake that's just swarmed with ants. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then we get our first kind of weird, unsettling moment mm-hmm. when both Mr. Hussey, the carriage driver, and is it Miss McCraw? Yeah. Both of their watches has, have stopped at noon. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And there's kind of this theory, too, that like there's this magnetism mm-hmm. from the volcanic rock that could be affecting their watches. Um and but there is this sense of like what is time is time kind of falling apart here that like order of the school and being like on a tight schedule is suddenly like well we don't know how to tell time anymore yeah and that's been taken away this really fits into kind of this recurring theme of the story that i think we're going to touch on multiple points but kind of this like um the rigidity of the school structure kind yeah. of this order And then kind of like the natural chaos of the landscape and specifically hanging rock. Mm -hmm. And this kind of being a moment of like, oh, their sense of time and their way of tracking and marking time is suddenly like. Impaired. Yeah. Made useless out in uh, in nature. Yeah. And three the three eldest girls want to take a walk and go up to hanging rock and just kind of look at it. And then Edith ends up tagging along as well. Yeah. And so they go off and they're like, oh, we won't be long. We just want to look at like the base of Hanging Rock. We're not going to like climb up it or anything. Um, Which, of course, is not what happens. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, oh, I bet we could climb like this part up here. Let's like just go a little bit up. I really like there's kind of um, multiple moments throughout this uh, sequence where you're kind of like led to like understand or think about how maybe odd the things that are going on are yeah one of the first ones is uh 
another character that we'll talk about later sees them kind of going towards uh, the, the rocks mm-hmm. and is like, that's pretty tough terrain going that direction and these girls are in like their petticoats and skirts and many layers so like they'll be turning around like probably any second and then they don't yeah it's interesting how the narration at this point in the book and even in the movie kind of showing them going up the rock like it's very easy for them yeah there almost like a path is opening for them yeah there's no kind of description of their struggle to get up there or any kind of like uh, difficulties. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it like we're we're told about the difficulties of the path, mm-hmm. uh, but we're n- not told about them actually encountering them. Yeah, and they're almost like compelled to continue climbing yeah. up the rock. And I mean, I think maybe all of us can understand this to a certain extent. Like you start hiking, or you start you know, going through this trail and you're just like, uh, just like another bend, you know what I mean? Almost like a little bit longer and you really don't know how far you're going because, you know, you don't have like a road in front of you. You don't have, like you might not have a map. Or a destination in mind specifically. No, and you're just kind of like, I don't know how far I'm going. I'm just going to go a little longer. And that kind of compulsion to keep going. And especially when you have like this rock that they're actually ascending. And so there's that idea of like getting to the top in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's like the kind of normalness of that. But then there's also this like kind of supernatural element that comes into play as well, where it seems like the girls are almost entering a type of trance. Yeah. At one point, uh, they all take their shoes and stockings off. Yeah. And uh, Edith, the one girl, the younger girl, is the only one who seems to be like, and we're kind of getting a lot of this from her perspective. Yeah. But she seems to be the one who's most aware of like. I don't want to do this. Yeah, this is weird. And like, what the fuck do you mean you're taking your shoes off? Like, it's yeah. we're in like the bush. We we're should in, go like, back now. Yeah. But like they take their uh, shoes and socks off and Irma. Uh, is it Irma who dances? Yeah. Yeah. Irma kind of like starts to kind of like dance around. And, you know, there's one part that. I remember being weird, but like maybe not specifically until I watched a video essay that referenced it. But it's kind of implied that they go to the same place twice. Yeah. There's kind of this flat uh, plateau of rock that's kind of crowned with like boulders. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of described like twice. They go to that spot twice and it's kind of it like it could just be another like it, it could be place. Yeah. but I, I i think it's kind of more about like is it the same place Where like are, are they going they? around in circles or like what is space and time right now exactly um but yeah they they start kind of being a little a little weird a little spacey mm-hmm. eventually they get to is it in front of the um the obel it, wait what's the term the Obelisk? Obelisk? Is it obelisk? Okay. I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I read words and I don't know how to pronounce them. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's definitely obelisk. I just couldn't remember if that was like uh, what they referred to it as. But mm-hmm. like they reach this kind of large egg shaped boulder and they all just kind of like lay down yeah. and sleep like immediately like they're just drugged. Yeah, which is super bizarre. And I also want to mention here the sound design in the movie. Uh And the book actually kind of mentions there's a couple lines where it says something like one of the girls noticed that there was like a distant sound of drums in the air. So kind of mentioning that they were they were hearing something. Mm -hmm. Um, But the movie really 
goes with this idea of like vibrations. Yeah. And kind of like almost the rock kind of sending out like a signal almost. Yeah, there it's like a there's the sound of wind. Yeah. Kind of, but it's kind of this continuous current of just sound. Mm-hmm. And that's mixed with the the score, which is really good. It's kind of um it's orchestral to a point, but it also sounds like there's kind of like a synthesizer kind of swelling sound yeah. effect in it too. I give huge props to the movie. I know. Because it really just goes fully into this like trippy, bizarre, otherworldly nature of this like hike. Yeah. Um, because I mean, reading it, you feel that way. Yeah. Um, but I was kind of shocked the movie like went with that as far as it did. Mm-hmm. And the the music and the score and the sound design just really add to that. Like you know that something weird is happening. Like, yeah. you know that this is not normal. This is just, not just girls, like, getting lost up on a mountain, you know? Mm-hmm. There's something bizarre going on, and it really gives you this sense of unease with the music, and I just love it so much. And I also love that this was filmed at Hanging Rock. Like, they're not on a set. Yeah. They are at this rock where they're filming, And I don't know how tough that is to do, especially like in the 70s when this was made. I know. Yeah. But like, it's amazing, honestly. Yeah. It just the sense of place is like so specific and unique. And like, I mean, they probably could have gotten away with like not filming there and like probably only like local Australians would have like really been aware of like, oh, that's not Hanging Rock. Yeah. But like, it just heightens and helps the story so much to see how unique that like location is. Yeah. I also love in the cinematography, they show a lot of um, rock faces and like boulders and stuff. And maybe they purposely escalated it to this extent, or maybe it was just, I didn't notice it till later, but like later on in the film, as they're searching, uh, they show boulders and rocks. And I was like, they look like faces. Mm. Like, I swear to God, so many of them kind of had the characteristics of a face, like yeah. either eyes or kind of like a mouth and nose or like they, they a lot of them looked like faces. And I thought it was like so unsettling and cool. It is. And at some point, Edith, you know, after the girls like fall asleep and then they wake back up, Edith is like, OK, let's let's go back. Like this is this is too much. Yeah. And the girls are, at this point, like, non-communicating. Yeah. And talking about the movie capturing the feeling, this scene in particular, it, it, it captured this, I like, this feeling and image in my head where the girls are, like, walking towards the obelisk, this yeah. huge boulder, and walking around it. And Edith is, like, panicking. And she's like, don't. What are you doing? Don't go. Yeah. Don't. And, like, in the book, it's like so dramatic, like the last bit of um, like Miranda or like wh- whichever girl or whatever. Yeah, disappearing behind this rock and Edith screams and runs away. Yeah. And the movie captures that feeling so much with this swell of music and sound effect. Mm-hmm. It's like the buildup you'd expect in a movie of someone going to be shot yeah. or stabbed. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. it's just like the disappearing of a skirt around a corner. Mm-hmm. And then it. Edith screams and it's like an aerial shot of her running away and it's like it's so mundane but the movie captures the creepiness of it so well definitely and Edith ends up like tearing down the whole 
mountain and coming back to the group. And what's interesting here, and the movie kind of follows this convention as well, the book switches from this perspective when Edith is running back down the hill to the testimony of Mr. Hussey, who was the driver for the Mm -hmm. group. And so the narration of the story is interrupted by this, like, this is an excerpt from the testimony of such and such to the police. So like kind of, again, blurring that line between fact and fiction and also doing something very interesting with the kind of structure of the story. And we find out from this testimony that you know, they ended up going back to the school and that Miss McCraw is also missing. Yeah, the mathematics teacher. Who Which is so interesting because I like, love that. we don't even get her perspective at all. Like we get the perspective of the girls going up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But then it's just like randomly Miss McCraw, the mathematics teacher who is like the most probably rational out of all of them. Who hates nature yeah, and everything. Is also just gone. And, like, no one saw her leave. Like, she was only ever at the picnic, as far as anyone remembers. Yeah. And then she was just gone. And along with those girls, the three girls who went up the mountain, no one can find her. Yeah. And I just, I don't know. Yeah, Miss McCraw being thrown into the mix just adds to the weirdness of, like, whatever the fuck is going on. Yeah. So good. I like in the movie, she's, like, reading about the triangle the triangles yeah. in the, in the book, she gives this whole monologue about the hypotenuse of a triangle. Yeah. And everyone's like, we don't care. Um, but in the movie, she's like reading a page on it and then kind of like looks up at hanging rock. And like, that's the last we see of her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I love too in the book, you know, once again, these things that were established earlier that like, maybe you thought were a little odd, but like didn't pay attention to, you know, after this, they were like, oh, yeah, remember she was, like, talking about wanting to go, like, a faster way home, like, yeah. because of triangle geometry <laughs> and, like, but it would go through, like, the middle of nowhere and, yeah. like, she was kind of behaving oddly. And it's like, yeah, she was, wasn't she? Yeah. Or at least it seemed like she was. Mm-hmm. And one of those things where it's like, is that just hindsight where I feel that way or, like, and the film does something similar too, where as they're approaching Hanging Rock... Miss McCraw is kind of talking about like how it was formed, the volcanic region of it. How ancient it is. Yeah. And like it kind of has this unsettling close up of her face as she's talking about it. Yeah. Just kind of giving this like kind of creepy vibe. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But eventually they all end up back at the school and they're like, we spent all this time looking for them. And we find out too, like, you know, after this happens, obviously there's a huge, a massive search effort yeah to find these three girls and to find miss mccraw but they're unsuccessful at one point they take edith back to hanging rock and they kind of like because they they can't even find like the path the girls took like they can't really find tracks or anything Mm -hmm. um and so they bring edith back and they're like okay where did you go now and like what direction and she's like trying to like remember but it's hard and then at one point she talks about like seeing on her way back down Miss McCraw going yeah. up the mountain. And they were like, what? <laughs> and she's like, yeah. What did I not tell you that before? <laughs> and like, it's funny, but like Edith is like depicted. Edith is just the worst. <laughs> okay. The people are so mean to her. Though. I know. I know. Her fat and stupid. And dumpy. Yeah. Which like, please, if she's stupid, like that's one thing, but like, don't be calling her fat. That's like, 
not not relevant, you know? I know. I felt, like, really bad. But, like, I do think it captures, like, at least from, like, a kid perspective, when there's a kid in your class here, just, like, I don't like anything about this person. Like, they're annoying and, like, everything yeah. else. And, like, uh, Edith is kind of, like, depicted that way. But in this moment, she's like, oh, yeah, I didn't tell you. Like, I saw Miss McCraw <laughs> going up the mountain. And... And she had removed her skirt and was just in her, like, bloomers underwear, basically. Yeah. Which, once again, is just like, what? Yeah. Like, she was, like, taking her clothes off as she, like, went up the mountain. Mm -hmm. Just, like, another one of those details that is, like, so odd. And it's funny because, like, you know, a lot of people believe this story is real. I don't know if, like, as many people now with, like, the internet and everything. But, like, um, a lot of people thought this story was real. And somehow, like... All of these odd details only add to that believability, strangely yeah. enough. Yeah. Like, they seem so random and disjointed in a way that's like, truth is stranger than fiction, you know? I know. Where you're like, yeah, I could imagine, like, watching, like, a a TV special about, like, strange, true stories. <laughs> Unsolved mysteries. Unsolved mysteries. <laughs> and yeah, and they would, like, tell you all these, like, weird details that don't make any sense, but, like, it adds to it. Yeah, I agree. Let's divert a little bit and talk about some other characters in this story. Um, our very favorite, Michael and Albert. Michael and Albert. We love them. So, <laughs> like... In the first, like, two seconds of seeing Michael in this film, because in the book, you know, Michael and Albert are pretty much together right off the bat, like, in a scene together. And in the film, you see Michael, who is uh, vacationing in Australia with his aunt and uncle, Mm -hmm. and they're at a picnic, and they're actually at Hanging Rock when everything else goes down. Mm -hmm. And in the film, you see Michael with his aunt and uncle, and it's like a minute passes, and Adina and I were both like, where's Albert? Yeah. Where is Albert? We, we need, need Albert. They didn't write him out of the story, did they? We were like immediately panicking. Of course Albert is in the movie. Of course. But yes, we were that concerned about Albert. But yeah, like you were saying, Michael is British. He's there with his aunt and uncle. He's pretty young. Um, and... He and Albert have this like instant friendship, even though Albert is like his complete opposite in so many ways. Albert is from Australia, grew up there, is very like low class as they would classify it at this time. He's the I don't know what the term would be like stable hand. Yeah. Who takes care of the horses for Michael's uncle. Yeah. So he's just kind of like a working class stiff. Mm -hmm. He has these uh, tattoos of like mermaids on his arms. Yeah. Uh, but he and Michael, yeah, they're so different. Michael is kind of like very introverted in a way and like doesn't talk a lot or kind of speak up very often. And Albert will kind of like go off on stories about his kind of like crazy adventurous past and everything. Yeah. But like they both just have this comfort around each other. Mm -hmm. And I really love the book talks about a lot like their relationship and just kind of their comfort around each other. Yeah. And just finding it, like you said, easy to be with each other and even not, not talking that much, but just being with each other. Yeah. And, uh, they are both at the picnic grounds and they actually see the four girls cross the river and head up towards hanging rock. And Mike in particular is sort of struck by Miranda yeah. And is like really drawn to her. She's apparently the prettiest of all of them and ends up kind of following them a little bit. But actually, when he starts to follow them, he can't find them because they've already gone so far ahead. Yeah. 
Um, but so he gets interviewed uh, by the uh, police chief or yeah. detective who's like trying to figure out where these girls are. Who's mm-hmm. like leading the search. And he talks to Michael about when and where they saw them and kind of trying to piece this together. Um, but, you know, this kind of reintroduces Michael to the story. But he's clearly very like still haunted by yeah. these girls just disappearing and feels like bad about it and has just been like stewing on it for a while yeah and there's a scene in the book and movie where he kind of goes to hang out with albert ditches the garden party that his aunt and uncle are throwing (laughs) yeah and is like i keep thinking about hanging rock i keep worrying about those girls i want to go and try to look for them myself and once again i really love this kind of uh brings back this concept of like um this kind of like strict British kind of um, lifestyle. Yeah, rules and, kind of and obligation. More rugged Australian kind of way of living. That's embodied so well by Michael and Albert. Yeah. Michael representing the British side, Albert representing the Australian. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mike is clearly kind of like letting loose a little bit at this point. Like, I yeah. like him kind of taking off his top hat. He doesn't want anything to do with like his aunt and uncle. And he wants to return to Hanging Rock to find the girls mm-hmm. and this scene where they're talking about it is great too. Cause in the book, and I'm so glad <laughs> I was so glad the movie kept this at least partially in the book. It talks about how they've just switched hats. Yeah. Like Michael's wearing Albert's kind of like weathered farmhand hat and Mike and, and Albert's wearing Michael's like kind of absurd, like fancy top hat. And they're just <laughs> sitting there talking uh, and similarly in the film, I think it's uh, Albert Al- puts on the hat. Albert puts on the top hat. Yeah. But just kind of showing their bond and kind of this like interplay between their roles in society. Mm-hmm. I like it a lot. Yeah, I agree. And Albert is at first reluctant, but then once he realizes that Mike wants to is going to go to Hanging Rock no matter what, he's like, well, of course, I'm going to come with you. And they go and they search Hanging Rock. They don't find anything, but Mike is like convinced that if he stays he'll be able to find something. I love how Mike kind of has the same draw to Hanging Rock that like maybe the girls had when they like went yeah. up it. Yeah. Like it's this compulsion. Yeah. And it might be more about returning to Hanging Rock than even like finding the girls. Mm-hmm. It's almost like unclear. Yeah, it is. And Albert reluctantly leaves Mike and Mike spends the night there and ends up going back up Hanging Rock looking for the girls. And it's, just as eerie and just as weird when he goes up in both the book and the movie. And it's kind of unclear what happens to him, but eventually Albert is like, I should go back for him. Like I'm concerned. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I shouldn't have left him when he has like no wilderness experience, just like camping with like no equipment basically. Yeah. And so he goes back up. Um, Mike has left a paper trail, basically a literal literal paper paper trail. (laughs) (laughs) And so he ends up finding Michael and he's almost like comatose. Like he's passed out in the movie. He's, his eyes are open and he's just staring. It's very creepy. (laughs) Yeah. It's like he has heat exhaustion, but also it feels like he's just like, he's seen some shit. It's a, he's in a trance. Yeah, Yeah. 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 So, uh, Albert is able to go for help. He gets a doctor, Uh, They go up the mountain and recover him. Mm -hmm. He seems to have a sprained ankle and just, you know, has been has suffered exposure, basically. But the doctor thinks he'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in the book, they take Michael back to his aunt and uncle's uh, and 
kind of treat him and he kind of is like recovering for a bit. Yeah. But during that time, Albert knows he has this little notebook and he like checks it and he finds a note from Michael saying like above my like paper trail. Basically. Yeah. Like keep going. Yeah. And it's kind of like an unfinished note. But Albert's like, holy shit, he found them or found someone or something. something. Yeah. So Albert goes back on his own. Yeah, but takes like a doctor and like a police officer. That's with him right. He does. In the book. He's, he's like, smart. He is smart. He's like, this was definitely a clue. Like he found something I'm bringing back up with me. Also, he has a great line about because they're like, I don't know. And he says, Michael has more brain and guts <laughs> than all three of us put together. Aw. They just like are so caring about each other i know in the movie it's interesting because as mike is being taken away by the doctor he has something in his hand and he gives it to albert and it's a scrap of lace so it's a little bit different in the book and movie but the similar message of like he found something albert goes back and in both versions they end up finding irma and at first it's like oh it's her body but then it's like oh shit she's alive yeah even though at this point it's it's been been a week. week yeah yeah and she's just laying there unconscious, but, like, somehow is still alive. Yeah. And they manage to, like, bring her uh, back to town. They take her to not the aunt and uncle specifically, but the, the cook. Co- yeah, somebody related. Yeah, who works for the aunt and uncle. And, and they have her stay there and kind of recover. Yeah. And I'm guessing she's kind of in a, not a comatose state for a while, but is like recovering. Kind of like Mike is definitely like mm-hmm. he's unconscious for a couple days. And I just have to say in both the book and the movie, but more in the movie, the doctor keeps talking about the girls being intact. And I'm just not here for it. <laughs> I am just not here for men looking at women's vaginas and literally being like, all right, they're intact. She is intact. It's gross. I just don't like the word even. I genuinely feel like the movie is kind of trying to say something with this. I don't know what yet. I would maybe have to like think on it more. Yeah. But like he says it once about um, uh, Edith. Yeah. After she comes off the mountain at the beginning. And then he says it about Irma at the bedside. And then immediately after saying it once, he says it to someone else on the way out. Like she's intact. And I don't know. It just feels like very specific, almost purposeful. Yeah. Like the idea. I don't know. And it may tie into something else. I'm not sure. But like, I mean, there are rumors going around because these women just disappeared and there's no trace of them. They can't find their bodies. Yeah. They can't find yeah. their clothes. They can't find anything. And so some people are like, oh, they've been kidnapped. Like yeah. pe- men, evil men were waiting like on the mountain and like took them away. And I don't know if this ties into maybe fears of like savages and that idea mm. of like maybe indigenous people or just the idea that like women going off and getting lost in general means a loss of innocence. Yeah, because Mike uh, specifically mentions he kind of followed the girls before because like he's like it was so weird to see girls just kind of on their own wandering through like nature. Yeah. And he was kind of like in the UK like I wouldn't ever see that happen. And he was kind of almost like 
drawn to that notion, maybe even more than the girls themselves, is just kind of this weird freedom that he wasn't used to seeing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But yeah, there's obviously been just tons of rumors and speculation about like, did they fall down a hole or a crevasse or like... Yeah. um, But, you know, something else adding to the mystery is just like, it was all three girls that disappeared. So it's like, did all three of them fall down a hole at like the same time? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Exactly. And... Compounding to this is that Irma, when she eventually wakes up, has no memory of what happened. No. Like, she can't remember anything. And so they're really, they have no leads in this investigation. No. So as this mystery, this disappearance has been going on, uh, the state of uh, Apple Bottom School (laughs) (laughs) has been uh, kind of getting worse and worse. Yeah. Yeah. for a number of reasons, uh, Miss Miss Appleyard, Mrs. Appleyard has been uh, kind of determined to like head off any rumors about what happened, kind of like try to contain the situation. And as a result, she's kind of like really limiting on what when the girls can be talking or like who they talk to, kind yeah. of like really tightening the limitations on their freedoms. Yeah. In true British fashion, she's like more discipline. (laughs) That's the answer. Yes. Um, And there's no real acknowledgement, acknowledgement of the fact that these girls are probably traumatized Mm -hmm. by what happened and the devastation of losing these classmates. You know, it's a small school. There's only like, 20 to 25 students. So they're like, like, no one talk about your feelings. Yeah. And like, let's not mention the fact that these girls are missing and, you know, things are just not, have not been right ever since then, even though Mrs. A is like trying to make everything seem normal. The girls are definitely upset. We have some parents actually pulling their students from the school because of the scandal. Like it's in all the newspapers. People are reading about it. It's, Drawing a lot of public attention. Yeah. And Mrs. Appleyard, uh, the the woman who runs the school, is like kind of unraveling. Yeah. She's a very like uh, kind of all her ducks in a row, like very proper, prim and proper woman, like is kind of beginning to unravel a bit. She is continuously drinking mm-hmm. at this point, kind of like to deal with everything that's going on. But yeah, girls are being pulled from the school. She's trying to, she's writing letters to the parents of these girls that disappeared. Being like, we don't know what happened. We're trying to find them. Mm -hmm. Teachers are actually quitting. Um, Staff members too. The French teacher is getting married, so she'll be leaving soon. Other teachers or, you know, uh, household staff are like, the vibe is weird now. Like, it's very unsettling here. I kind of don't want to be here anymore. Yeah. It's kind of just like this escalating problem. You know what I mean? It's like more people quit as more things go wrong. More people pull out. Yeah. More people quit. Yeah. It uh, snowballs a bit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I kind of like throughout the book, especially, just like it keeps mentioning like this is when tom decided he was gonna find new work after (laughs) easter break yeah this is when Minnie (laughs) like it just this is when this girl is like i might ask my parents if i cannot go back here like next term (laughs) yeah and here too we find out more about kind of a central character in the story sarah and we've been 
kind of hearing a little bit about her off and on throughout the book, but we thought this was a good point to mention her. Yeah. She's about 13. She's really young. She's an orphan, and she's at the school, and she shares a room with Miranda, the one of the girls who disappeared. And she really seems to have had a connection with Miranda. Yeah. Um, yeah, really like loved her and kind of in what way and to what degree is pretty ambiguous. Yeah. But she clearly had a deep affection for her. Mm -hmm. So her disappearance was really, I think, impactful and traumatizing to her. Yeah. She was actually held back from going to the picnic because she hadn't memorized a poem she was supposed to remember. I know. And when she, I love, I honestly love Sarah because there's a, a scene in both the book and the movie where, like Mrs. Appleyard comes to check on her and she's like, well, have you memorized this poem? And she's like, no, it doesn't make sense. It's a stupid poem. Like, I don't really care. And I'm yeah. like, honestly, I agree with you, Sarah. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, what's the point Why? in memorizing a poem? Yeah, what does it exactly. Do? Honestly. I really love, there's kind of an interesting, and this, honestly, this is why I like outlining before episodes, because sometimes I kind of like pick up on little themes or ideas when yeah. we do that. But one thing I think is fascinating that the book I think is really upheld by the source material is this idea that like art is kind of more this like thing that is embodied in nature yeah, and associated with nature and that like is kind of disassociated from like the structural uh, regiment of this school. Yeah. So because um, Sarah doesn't want to read this or memorize this poem, but she's like, I wrote a poem. Yeah. And Mrs. Apple Yard, <laughs> I had to think about it. Mrs. Apple Yard is like, I don't care that you wrote a poem. Yeah. Like, this girl wrote a whole poem. Yeah. And and that's not, nobody cares about that. No, Mrs. Apple Yard is like, I don't give a shit. Like, you should memorize this other poem that I like better. Yeah. Similarly, uh, Sarah as punishment later. So her, um, her, her guardian. guardian isn't, has kind of stopped writing and sending in the checks for her tuition. Mm -hmm. And so Mrs. Apple Yard is like, okay, well, we're going to have to cut your art uh, you can't draw anymore and you can't dance anymore. Yeah. Like she cuts the arts from her. Yeah. And similarly, I can't help but think about uh, when the three girls were going up the mountain, Irma dances. Yeah. She kind of has this moment of just kind of like inspired dance, just mm -hmm. kind of like free of anything else. Yeah. And so there's this kind of this interesting correlation of like art and dance and writing, uh, being tied more to, like, nature. Yeah. As opposed to, like, this kind of structured school setting. It does kind of make sense, though, because I did read that the author was a painter, and so was her husband. Oh, interesting. So oh, yeah, okay. she may be kind of coming at it from that perspective, which I honestly agree with, because Sarah is clearly a very bright and, like, interesting and smart girl, but literally it's just... Everybody, all the teachers, except for Diane, the French teacher, are basically like, why do you suck? You're the worst. And yeah. they're so mean to her. Well, and it's so tragic without, you know, spoiling where it goes. But like there were people that cared about Sarah. Yeah. Like obviously Miranda cared about her. The art teacher. Uh, Tom and Minnie yeah. both seemed to have a soft spot for her. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like 
Uh, it wasn't like an Edith situation where it was a girl who was everyone just like hates universally hated by everyone. <laughs> yeah. Panned by critics. Uh, but like, no, she did have a lot of people that cared about her. But unfortunately, it only takes a couple people in positions of power to tear someone down. Yeah. And, and that it's, it's really sad and devastating. It is really sad. And so Irma is getting better at this time. And it's interesting that the movie totally cuts this storyline out. But in the book, Irma and Mike kind of have a little bit of a romance. Yeah. And it seems to kind of be pushed by Mike's aunt and uncle, by the uh, couple that is keeping Irma at yeah. their house. They're like, oh, my God, he like rescued her. He saved her life. It's so romantic. And now they're both like here together. They're both the right ages. Yeah. They're both like have... They're the right social classes. Yeah. Yeah. And Mike does kind of like agree to like meet her and hang out a bit. And like they spend time together. Um, And you I mean, they both experience something similar in terms of like going up to Hanging Rock for like unknown reasons, really. And feeling compelled to kind of do this and then having a very traumatic experience there. So I think there is this mutual understanding between them. It seems like things are going well. As you're reading the book, you're like, oh, like, I, I bet they're going to get together now. Like, it makes sense, right? Yeah. Ex- that doesn't happen. <laughs> Except Mike manages to ghost her <laughs> early 1900 style. I know. This is like the equivalent of breaking up with someone by text. <laughs> Literally, she's supposed to come to like lunch or dinner at his aunt and uncle's house. Mike just doesn't show up. Yeah, and they're like, I don't know where he is. Irma has to, like, eat dinner with this couple that she doesn't know. It's super awkward. She gets back to the house that she's staying in, and they're like, oh, there's a letter for you from Mike. Yeah. And the letter is like, what, a paragraph? (laughs) He's like, hey, sorry, I fell asleep in the woods, LOL. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I'm going to England because of, like, some business and my aunt and uncle are like leaving because this is like their summer house. So sad, sad face emoji. They're going. They're they're going to be gone anyway. So like, I probably won't see you again. Bye. Like literally. <laughs> and then he was like, also like, if you have any recommendations for, I'm going to be traveling later. Do you, do you have any like sweet spots? Like, like let's stay friends. Yeah. <laughs> it was so funny how relevant it was to today. I know it does seem though, like in the book, that Irma was in love with Mike. Yeah, and I mean, their situation was very extreme, and I think it's hard to, like, gauge, like, normal reactions to people in that situation. Like, maybe she did love him, but also maybe she wouldn't have other in other circumstances. Yeah. But she does seem kind of upset by this. I know. Um, But luckily, it doesn't drag out any more beyond this. (laughs) I love the narration of the story. There is kind of this narrator's voice. Yeah. And it said about, like, how... You know, Mike isn't very good at communicating his thoughts or feelings via letter or writing. But the narrator is like, for a young man who is very poor at communicating himself in a letter, he communicated his intent quite well with this one. (laughs) Yeah, he was basically like, um, I'm breaking up with you. I don't want to see you again. Bye. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But this leads us into a discussion I'm very excited to have, which is the theme of queerness in Picnic at Hanging Rock. Yeah, and let's talk about our favorite couple, if you haven't guessed it by now. It's Mike and Albert. It's Mike and Albert. (laughs) (laughs) We love them. They are 
just so great to each other, around each other. There's so many just like, I don't know, like it's constantly reiterated that Mike has this connection with Albert and vice versa. They both do with each other. Yeah. Where they just have this comfort. They have a respect for each other as well. Mm -hmm. They both talk about how they talk to other people about each other. In fact, like with Irma, when Mike is hanging out with Irma and she's like, oh my God, thank you for saving my life. He's like, oh, actually it was like all Albert, honestly. Like Albert did it all. He's so cool and like smart and interesting and like fun to be around. You have to meet him. And Irma's like, Okay. Cool. And yeah. And then Irma like talks to Albert later, who like Albert is totally avoiding Irma. Maybe he's jealous. I don't know. <laughs> um, and she's like, "Oh my god, thank you so much for like your role in saving my life." And he was like, "Oh, you know what? It was all Mike. Like he's such a great guy. Like he's so smart. <laughs> like he knows what he's doing. If it wasn't for him, like it's it's all him." So like she's they can't, like, "Okay." They can't stop talking about each other. <laughs> And just so readers or listeners don't think that we're like exaggerating this point at all. Like, I want to just read one little passage and (laughs) the book is full of moments like this. I think this is maybe the most explicit. Um, Michael went out to the stables with a kerosene lantern and two cold bottles of beer. The coachman was lying naked on his bed, reading the racing tips from the hocklet by the light of a candle whose wavering flame sent ripples of light across his powerful chest tufted with coarse black hair. Dragons and mermaids writhed and wriggled uh, with every movement of the muscular arm pointing to a broken rocking chair under the tiny window. Very sexy. Super, super sexually erotic. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I don't know. Their interaction is just so, I think, sexually charged um, in the book and to an extent in the film as well. There's one moment in the film that I think kind of hinted towards this it's at the very beginning but i like it where um when they're first kind of talking and getting to know each other yeah uh albert hands mike a bottle of beer or wine that he's drinking from Uh and mike kind of takes the bottle and he kind of like wipes off the mouth of it and like takes a slug of it and then passes it back and then they kind of keep talking and getting along and albert passes mike the bottle again And he kind of goes to wipe off the mouthpiece again and then intentionally does not Mm. and then takes a drink from it. Yeah. Like, obviously just like, oh, we're connecting now, but like kind of more a little. It seems very familiar. Yeah. 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 And I don't know. They just have this camaraderie like we've been talking about, you know, and it seems so like deep, honestly. Yeah. And the fact that Mike basically breaks up with Irma for no reason that we know of. Yeah. Like, it's never explained in the book why he kind of breaks things off with her. But, like, it's obvious it's because he really loves Albert instead. <laughs> it is. It, it <laughs> true. And I like it, too, because um, we've read other older novels that have kind of themes of queerness kind of running under the surface, you know? Yeah. Uh, one of them that comes to mind is Rebecca. Yeah. Um, But in a lot of those other stories, it's kind of like, more of a sad kind of take on that idea. Negative. Yeah, it's like, oh, this like sad longing that will like never be fulfilled. And maybe this is why some people are like fucked up. And like, it's more tragic. But like genuinely, like you can read this story as like a positive queer uh, relationship story. And basically, except for them like getting a chance to, like, kiss each other. Yeah. Like, you get, like, a whole arc of their relationship. Yeah. 
in a great way. And it's like very fulfilling to read it and mm-hmm. not have to be like, oh, oh this and is then sad. one of them killed themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's really great and just fulfilling to and, and like and it's not even like this is a theme in a lot of the book, but these characters do just fit together as characters, as yeah. individuals. It's not like oh, we're pushing these two characters together for the point of making a point. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, they kind of just seamlessly fit together and it's really sweet. Yeah. And there's kind of other aspects of queerness in the story as well. Like Mm -hmm. with the schoolgirls and kind of their relationship with each other. I think specifically like Irma talks about being very enamored with Miranda. Yeah. In the book and kind of being like, not in love with her, but just like, enraptured by like her beauty well and it's implied too that sarah had a crush on miranda as well sarah is a good bit younger Mm -hmm. and like honestly that could be more of a kind of a parental love yeah as her being an orphan but i think it could totally be interpreted as a romantic one as well yeah uh one thing that stuck out to me that i hadn't thought about because this is at the very beginning of the book but the book takes place on Valentine's Day. Oh, yeah. And all the girls are giving each other Valentines. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which I remember thinking like, oh, that's kind of odd. Not odd, but like unexpected, I guess. And there is a line about like all kinds of love were present. Mm-hmm. So kind of implying that there were maybe romantic Valentines and feelings between the girls at the school as well. Mm-hmm. And honestly, just the three girls ascending the mountain, uh, they kind of are stripping off pieces of clothing as they go. Yeah, we find out, like, Irma, like, lost her corset along the way. Yeah. Which is very, like, symbolic of Victorian oppression. Yeah, You know, and their shoes, and, yeah, I think just the act of, like, the three of them kind of going off together and leaving this very structured, orderly system behind is kind of queer in itself. Absolutely, and, you know, things are so, like, I don't know, time becomes, like, not a thing as they go up the mountain. And it's yeah. like, if that if they're free of that, they're also free of, like, the sexual expectations or repression that they face, too. You know what I mean? It's kind yeah. of like they're free of everything, almost. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, but, like, I don't know, the theme of, of queerness in this story, I think, was, like, so prominent, but so great to read. Like, yeah. especially with Albert and Michael, I think. I know, it felt very natural to the story. Yeah, and I just loved that, like, They even kind of get a happy ending. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh my God. This is perfect. (laughs) This is like more than I could have even hoped for. I know. So Irma decides to like say one last goodbye to the school and to her teachers and to the students before she is like, all right, I'm leaving all of this traumatic uh, <laughs> stuff behind. Whatever. She's like, she's like, I'll just pop in. Yeah. Say howdy doody. Say hi to the gals. Give some hugs and kisses and leave. Yeah, she has an interesting confrontation with, with Mrs. Appleyard in the book. Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Appleyard, you can tell, is, like, losing her shit, basically. <laughs> yeah. Because she even says, like, she is usually very, like, tight-lipped and, like, doesn't really say what she's feeling. But in this moment is basically, like, you were a terrible student and I always thought you were bad. <laughs> and Irma is essentially, like, yeah, I'm sure all the shit in school I should have learned would have saved me in the Australian bush. Yeah. You dumb bitch. <laughs> Basically. I just, I love though that like Irma is like, 
she's kind of fearless now of Miss Appleyard. She, like, doesn't care about her. No. And kind of, like, implying almost that, like, she discovered something maybe on the mountain, even yeah. if she doesn't remember. She's matured in a way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even though she's still intact. <laughs> she's quite intact. <laughs> Ugh. Stop it. It's gross. Uh, she decides to uh, visit a, the class of girls uh, who are currently doing, quote unquote, gym. <laughs> And both book and film capture, like, a very unsettling quality just to the setting alone. Yeah. Uh, In the film, it's kind of a barn, Mm -hmm. and the girls are dancing. And there are these, uh, I don't know what you would call them in ballet, the bars that you hold on to. Yeah, But they're, like, just suspended from the barn rafters. And it's such a great, like, visual setting. Like, Irma is kind of, like... These rafters or th- these these bars that are hanging or pointing at her and the girls are lined up on them. And it's mm-hmm. almost like she's like on trial. Yeah. And again, like kind of bringing up the idea that these girls have never had an opportunity to discuss what happened. And they're clearly they've clearly been traumatized as well. So like Irma arrives and it's almost like a reminder of everything that happened to them. Yeah. And it creates this hysteria. And basically all the girls start like yelling and screaming and laughing and kind of getting into this like really freaky shit and yelling at Irma and being like, what did you do to them? What happened to them? Where are they? Where are they? Like what happened? And wanting answers from Irma, which unfortunately Irma doesn't remember anything. So she can't give. Yeah. And you know, we've been kind of like building this up. Is it going to be a bad experience? But I do love in the book and film, it does catch you off guard You know what I mean? Because, like, when they discovered Irma was alive, like, the girls, like, celebrated. They were so happy and, like, excited that, like... Yeah. Because at that point, it was a week, and, like, they all thought they were dead. And so to discover one of them was alive, like, everyone was exuberant. Yeah. And so her going to say goodbye, you'd think, would be this really joyous moment. But instead, it's suddenly, like, weird and Mm -hmm. cold and uncomfortable. And they're reminded of the thing that be- they've been trying to repress, basically. Yeah, and then every, like, shit hits the fan in the most extreme way, and girls just, like, lose, like, all control. I love the one teacher, uh, what, what's her name? Miss Lumley. Lumley. Like, fucking cowers behind the piano. Yeah. She's like, oh my god. And, like- and in the book, like, Diane, the French teacher, is like, go get help. And she's like, okay. And then she goes and just hides in the cupboard. <laughs> And I'm like, what is wrong with you? Like, you're being worse than not helpful. Like, you're actively, like, contributing to this bad situation. Yeah. So it's, like, up to Diane. She, like, pushes her way into the crowd of girls. She (laughs) slaps um, Edith across the face. Because Edith is, like, now the ringleader of this, like, posse. Yeah. She slaps Edith and manages to, like, get control of the situation. But it's, like... Very sad and upsetting for Irma and, like, all the girls, honestly. Yeah. And I think it really captures this um, franticness. I don't want to say hysteria because I hate that No, but also the sense of trauma that has lingered, clearly. Yeah. And it might be something that these girls carry their whole life. Absolutely. And also contributing to this idea that there's something not right at the school anymore. Mm -hmm. And wanting, everybody just wants to, like, leave at this point. They're like, you know, they think that if they leave the school, the trauma will be gone. But clearly they need therapy. Yeah. <laughs> Miss Lumley actually quits yeah. at one point. Yeah. And then she goes to a hotel with her brother 
and the hotel burns down. And they die. And they die in the fire. I know. It's very, like, biblical almost. Like, did she sin in some way? And she's (laughs) having to, like, that's her payment? I don't know. Yeah, it's very, but also just this idea that, like, is this school just, like, cursed now? Yeah. Because there are rumors in the town of, like, ghosts and hauntings and different sightings going on. And, Mm -hmm. like, there's just this, like, vibe that the school can't seem to shake at this point. Yeah. And people are just, like, scattering. Yeah, nothing good is going to happen. And I just want to touch a little bit on Mike and Albert again, because they reunite. Um, Mike left the house for a while, but then ended up coming back. And he and Albert are hanging out. And this is an interesting part where Albert tells him about a dream he had, Mm -hmm. like, just the other night. And he talks about... Um, smelling this strong scent of pansies, which was a, a flower that his sister really loved, and seeing his sister appear before him and kind of saying goodbye to him. And this is sort of the part where we figure out that Sarah and Albert are siblings. Yeah. Because we both know that they're orphans and grew up in an orphanage and were separated in this orphanage. And Sarah was obviously somehow adopted by somebody. Yeah. And Albert just kind of came of age and like, you know, got a job and went about his life. And they haven't been in contact with each other. And so we get this hint from Albert. And then Michael talks about how he actually doesn't want to go back to England and instead wants to travel to Queensland in Australia. And he's like, you could... You could come with me. Do you want to come along? I don't don't know. know. You could just, we could go together. (laughs) And Albert's like, I really want to. He's like, I kind of have to figure out my shit here first. Yeah. uh, Because your uncle's been really good to me and I don't want to just like leave immediately. Um, But it's really interesting because Irma's dad actually sends Albert a check in the mail for a thousand pounds because he helped save his daughter. Yeah. And with that money, he's able to buy his own horse and kind of like, okay, I can, I have enough money to leave now. I can go meet Mike. Yeah. Yeah. And I just want to read like a little, a passage from this part as they're hanging out together. And so Mike is thinking he's been hanging out in this empty house of his aunt and uncles and it's just shitty. And then he goes to be with Albert in like this really like very rundown room in the stables And he basically says, Mike thought there was an air of welcome, even of comfort, unknown in his aunt's drawing room. If you were a married man, he said, settling down into the broken rocking chair, you would be what the women's magazines call a homemaker. I like a bit of comfort where I can get it, if that's what you mean. Not only that, like so many things one would have liked to say, it was too complicated to embark on. I'd like to see you in a place of your own someday. And just this idea of like, Mike finding comfort and welcome in Albert's company. I know. Even though it's like a poor setting compared to his aunt's and uncle's house, um, I think just clearly illustrates their perfect love. Uh, And Mike's like, it's too complicated of a feeling to like describe. I don't know what it is. And we find out by the end of the story that like Michael has settled down and kind of had a farm or like a cattle ranch or something in Queensland and, like, I like to believe that Albert joined him out there. I mean, Albert, as soon as he got the money... He we, was like, all right, I'm going. Yeah, and what the the afterward or whatever that talks about... That's, like, 13 years later, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
Yeah. They're just two gay cowboys in Australia (laughs) living their dreams, Ian. I mean, it is so great that, like, I feel like, uh, what's the author's name? Joan Lindsay. Joan Lindsay. I I was like, is it Lindsay Joan or Joan Lindsay? (laughs) Um, She, like, honestly, for the constraints of, like, the time period, I feel like gave us as good of a gay romantic subplot as you could hope for in a book at the, I know. like this. I know. Like, they just care about each other so much. They leave together. And... I mean, Mike decides to give up, like, society life. Yeah. You know, Albert has this job with the horses that's pretty good. And he could also have an opportunity to work for Irma's father. He offers Albert a job. And he's like, no, I'm going to go join Mike. Like, yeah. they really seem to come together and meet in the middle of their kind of backgrounds yeah just a great part of the story that i i we both i know really really loved yeah let's talk about something not great (sighs) yeah let's do it let's talk about how sarah's guardian has not been paying her fees and now mrs a is telling her that she's gonna have to send sarah to an orphanage and it's really sad because sarah has been in an orphanage before and she actually tells minnie the one um like housemaid that she just kind of like was miserable in an orphanage before. Yeah. At one point the orphanage thought she was going to run away. So they shaved her head. Yeah. And it's just like clearly. Very traumatic. Yeah. She has so much trauma and like bad experiences from this place. Mm -hmm. And it's so sad because once again, Minnie and Tom who are like both workers at this school, but like are also sleeping together. Yeah. Which is great. They like Minnie really cares about Sarah. Uh, uh, Diane, the governess, really cares about her. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Albert, yeah. her brother, is close by, even though she doesn't know about it, and he cares about her. Yeah. Her art teacher was like, hey, if you aren't allowed to stay here, like, I want you to come. Even her guardian, we find out later that he was detained with business in a very, like, remote part of the country and couldn't send any letters. And is like... I'm so sorry I was away. Here's all the money I owe. And I I plan to like hang out with Sarah soon. You know, like there are all these people that care about her. But Mrs. Appleyard is just so cruel in this way towards Sarah. There's also a really interesting moment in the film where after Mrs. Appleyard tells her that she's going to be sent back to an orphanage, Mrs. Appleyard goes back to her office and begins to weep. Yeah. And I I really don't know how I'm supposed to interpret this scene. I mean, my own personal interpretation is Mrs. Appleyard has shown absolutely zero interest or caring or sympathy for Sarah. Yeah. Honestly, I think she's crying for herself. I think so, too, because she knows that the school is done for. Yeah. I don't think she gives a fuck about Sarah. No. Even in that moment. No, I don't think she does either. And I kind of love that, that like. The movie does such a good job of establishing that, that, I mean, the both of us saw that scene and we're like, no, she doesn't care about her. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, But so, yeah, Sarah gets this really, uh, really terrible news. And not long after Sarah, well, well, one day Mrs. Appleyard is just like, Sarah's uh, guardian came and took her. Yeah, she's gone. Um, He took her away early. And they didn't really have time to pack her things, so that's why, like, none of her stuff is really taken. And no one really saw him because it was early on this morning, blah, 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 and I didn't know he was coming. And this is, like, super odd and suspicious. And Diane, the French teacher, is kind of, like, 
I'm honestly concerned. And in the book, she actually kind of looks in the room and notices that uh, Sarah's little portrait of Miranda that she carried with her everywhere is left behind. And she's like, Sarah wouldn't go anywhere without this if she could help it. Yeah. And this is like enough in the book for her to write a letter to the police officer who's investigating the disappearances. And yeah. is like, listen, I think something happened to this girl, Sarah. Yeah. And it's enough for like the police officer to be like, that is weird. Yeah. And the French teacher is like, no one saw her go or her guardian come and mm-hmm. take her. And in the book, in fact, we get uh, a, a scene where Mrs. Appleyard goes to the room of that belonged to Miranda and Sarah, which is now vacant. Yeah. And she's kind of looking around and she recalls the note she found and destroyed and destroyed uh, on on the pin cushion or something. Mm-hmm. We're never told what that note says. No. And so even though the book in a way just like gives us more details, it's still as ambiguous as the film. Yeah. And in the film, we just have the gardener literally finding Sarah's body. And we realize that she jumped from the roof. Yeah. Or was pushed. Yeah, that's the thing. Because <laughs> in the film, I guess in the book, it's at least obvious she did it herself if there was like a note involved i'd imagine yeah maybe but like yeah there's so many unanswered questions because like was it if it was a suicide note was it a suicide note or was it just i'm running away yeah did did mrs appleyard know this girl was dead somewhere yeah nowhere mm-hmm. or did she think she just like ran away and was hoping she would just like stay away so she made up this story about the guardian getting her it is very unclear how much mrs appleyard knew because she obviously knew enough to cover up the yeah. disappearance of her but yeah in the film there's also the possibility that she killed her yeah but but if she did, like, the body... Why wouldn't she hide the body? Why wouldn't she do something with that? Yeah. It is kind of cool, though, because, like, in the book, after the gardener finds a body, he goes to tell Mrs. Appleyard, and then immediately it cuts to, like, another, like, this is the testimony of the gardener, and it's yeah. literally, like, a police report, kind of. And in the movie... We get the scene where he goes and he actually tells Mrs. Appleyard. And she's like already dressed all in black like she's attending a funeral. It like, is. She's so unsettling. It's chilling. Yeah. And she just like looks at. I forget who the, the guy is. It's yeah. not Tom. I think he is Tom also. There's like two Toms. Oh, OK. Yeah. <laughs> but she just looks at the man who, who he literally sticks his head in the office like, oh, my God, they found Sarah and she's dead. And Mrs. Appleyard in black sitting at her desk just looks over at the man. And says nothing. And there's this ticking of a clock. And like you just feel like your skin crawling. Yeah. And then suddenly, once again, almost like a gunshot, the ticking stops. Yeah. And then we get a narration, a voiceover. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of this, it's a, we've never had a narration, have we? I don't think so. It's a person saying like, Mrs. Appleyard's body was found at the base of Hanging Rock. Like she probably jumped. Yeah. Or like, it looks like she fell down the mountain trying to climb it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Like at some point she fucked off and like went to. Hanging Rock. And I love that, that like. How the watches stopped at Hanging Rock. Yeah. And in that moment, the clock stops. Mm-hmm. And it's like, 
hanging rock has like seeped into the school itself in that moment in yeah. some way. Yeah. She can't escape it. And she decides that that's her fate. Yeah. The book is more specific about the events that happened. Yeah. Mrs. Appleyard is like, oh, my God, you have to drive me into town to the police station. And uh, the guy does. And then she's like, OK, you can just leave. I'm going to go in. And then she's like, no, actually, I'm going to go somewhere else. And then she, like, gets another ride out to Hanging Rock. Yeah. And then she just starts, like, climbing Hanging Rock. And I love the description because they're like. She's never been in nature for like her whole life. She's like never even like she hasn't even like touched grass (laughs) in her life. And suddenly she's like scaling this mountain. Yeah. And she actually makes it up to the obelisk, which we know is like pretty far up. Yeah. And for, you know, she seems like an older woman. Yeah. Who's not in great physical shape and is drunk. Mm -hmm. But she gets up that high and then she sees like the ghost or corpse of Sarah. Yeah, whether it's a vision or she's actually like being haunted in some way, we don't know, but it literally drives her to like jump off the cliff. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very descriptive about her body <laughs> bouncing down <laughs> rock to rock like Plinko and the price is right. And then getting crushed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then we get like an afterword in both the book and movie kind of saying like they never found any of the other two girls or the teacher like never found their bodies, no hint of what happened to them kind of like says that Irma and Edith both never remembered anything more about their time at hanging rock as well. And there is something interesting in that the book actually had an additional chapter and apparently Joan Lindsay was going to include it with the original publication But publishers thought that it would be better to end the story with the mystery because this ending chapter kind of goes back to the girls ascending the mountain and kind of shows you what happened. And it was published later as kind of like a short story. Yeah. And I completely agree with it being cut from the novel. Yeah. Uh, It's interesting to read. Uh, essentially it kind of goes back to the girls after they left Edith. Yeah. Uh, they are joined by Miss McCraw. Miss McCraw and they continue to go up the mountain. We get the scene of them taking their corsets off. Yeah. And as they throw them off the mountain, they kind of like hang in midair mm-hmm. and kind of this implication that like we're outside of time right now. Yeah. And then they kind of enter like a wormhole, essentially. Yeah. It's like a literal wormhole. And like Miss McCraw kind of turns into like a crab. Yeah. <laughs> there, There's this idea. And it is interesting. It, it, it's not so random because um, there is a lot of connection with like animals. Yeah. And, and this does tie into um, kind of some beliefs and ideas of, of the aboriginal people mm-hmm. of this area. One of them being totems, mm-hmm. which I am giving a very probably oversimplified and probably even inaccurate concept of it. But the idea that like when someone's born, kind of an animal like spirit actually becomes their soul. It like inhabits them. Yeah. And so this idea of like having kind of an animal equivalent, like spirit animal. Yeah. Um, and in the throughout the book, I think swans were heavily associated with Miranda. Yeah. As they were in the film. Mm-hmm. And other animals had other correlations to the other girls. Um, apparently Miss McCraw is a huge crab. 
but kind of this idea that like they enter this wormhole and they kind of like return almost to that state. Yeah. And similarly, there is this also concept of um, dream time. Yeah. I think it's called, which is another Aboriginal concept, kind of tying into like the origin of the universe and time and kind of this like pre-existence. Mm-hmm. Um. But essentially that kind of being this space that they're entering in when they go up hanging rock, kind of like outside of time, essentially. Yeah. And them literally disappearing into another place, maybe specifically, you know? Yeah. And, you know, it is interesting to read that. But like, I feel like you already get that feeling. I agree. Without the chapter. I don't think it needs to be explicit. Like you already feel like the girls just disappeared into nature. Like, their bodies were never found. You do get animal correlations with them later on in the story. It does feel like they just kind of, like, disappeared into the bush and into the wild and animals and, you know. Yeah. And kind of talking about this theme, I do want to make sure we touch on the fact that, you know, this is a made-up story about Hanging Rock, But the legacy of the story really lives on in Australia and at Hanging Rock. In fact, there's like a discovery center or kind of like a area near Hanging Rock where it kind of shows you the like the mythology of this book and the movie and about the girls that disappeared and kind of like gives you this little like fairy tale idea of what happened there, even though it's completely untrue. Well, and they I saw interviews with people who were visiting that space and they were like, yeah, I think the story's true. Yeah. Like on a TV interview. And they're like, yeah, I, I think it's I think it happened. And I read this really great article, which I'll post on Patreon for everybody. And it's talking about the disappearance at Hanging Rock. And the article is basically like, so this kind of legacy is of these white girls that disappeared at Hanging Rock, which is completely untrue and totally ignores the fact the real disappearance of the indigenous and Aboriginal people of Australia. And just like this idea that we would rather talk about and be interested in made up white girls disappearing than address the fact that, you know, thousands, millions of indigenous and Aboriginal people were killed, um, were given diseases and died, and then were forcibly removed from their original homelands to live on a reservation. And I mean, it's very similar in the United States. Like the legacy of the indigenous people here is the same. Um, But Hanging Rock was a very spiritual place for many tribes um, and people for thousands of thousands of years. And then that was just taken away. And it's really sad because we don't have a lot of record of like what that history is and what that place meant to those people. Really a lot of that has been lost. And so I think it is really important to just mention the fact that some people are just so preoccupied with this (laughs) made up story that it's like, no, but what's the real legacy of hanging rock? Like we need to talk about like what actually happened here. I mean, for me, like I don't even feel like this is a criticism of the story itself yeah but more just like the reception and embracing of it and kind of like the weird fixation on it i will say the book kind of correlating this like chaos and kind of creepiness and eeriness and almost kind of correlating it with that like savagery 
mm-hmm. you know, and maybe tying it to indigenous people. Like there was no outright comparison, but kind of like making this place feel very alien and creepy and wrong and like very outside of the normal when, you know, nature doesn't have to be this very terrifying and alien thing, you know? Yeah, I I agree. I, I, I do think, though, the book, like, I actually appreciate the fact that they just didn't even mention yeah. Aboriginal people. It, it in no way tried yeah. to, like... They don't do, like, the Stephen King thing, which is like, oh, it was an Indian burial <laughs> Indian ground. Indian burial ground, yeah. Like, come on, Stephen and King. And similarly in the film, they don't try to add, like, no. Aboriginal music no, or drum beats into anything. Like, it really is in my mind, more about like nature and kind of like the eeriness of nature in, in in certain ways. You know what I mean? Like I do feel like it's, it did a good job of like not trying to draw lines between that. And for that reason, we don't have to read back on this book and be like, Ooh, you know, you totally make a good point with that. Like it is, there's no cringy, like they meet with like a spirit guide or something, you know, nonsense like that. Yeah. But I do think it's really important to remember like the actual disappearances of hanging rock and Mm -hmm. like the actual real life people who were displaced and like removed from a, location that was very significant to them Mm -hmm, definitely so ian which one is better i'll take it this time yeah you go i feel confident i think the movie was a really good adaptation honestly it Mm -hmm. was very faithful a lot of dialogue a lot of moments pulled just straight from the source material i like how weird it got in the way that the book felt. Yeah. But ultimately, I have to go with the book on this one. Yeah. Um, I, I just felt like the the book uh, just explored so many interesting ideas. It got even more into the queer side of things than even the film could. Yeah. Um, and yeah, honestly, as soon as it was done, I'm like, I could reread this, honestly. Yeah. Because like when I watched that video and it mentioned like, oh, the Valentine's Day thing kind of being related to that the queer undertones in the story i'm like wow i'm like how many other things did i probably like skim over early on and not pick up on because i didn't have a good idea of the themes yet yeah i feel like just for the albert and michael story alone i have to go with the book (laughs) yeah like it's great in the movie but it's so expanded on in the book and it's so so much more real and beautiful in in the book and i love it so much But I do have to say the movie is excellent and it really sets up this creepy atmosphere and it keeps you engaged in a story that like should be boring, honestly, but isn't. Um, So I guess I'll have to slightly go with the book, but it's a really tough choice on this one. Yeah, I mean, the movie really gave it, I I don't want to say a run for its money, but like really stands up well beside the book. Yeah. Uh, It keeps all those like moments and weird intrigue and like little things like when the one maid is like, they didn't find her corset on the mountain. Yeah. You know what I mean? And the other one is like, oh, that's not of any importance. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like it isn't from a plot standpoint, but like things like that that add to the themes of the story are included in the film. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. Now that we have talked about which one we prefer, I just want to read John's thoughts on this book and movie combo. So John says, 
I have so many thoughts and feelings on Picnic at Hanging Rock, it's hard to put into concise words. It's the kind of book and movie that worms its way into your brain and can be hard to get out once it's there. I found its subtle ponderings on colonialism and queerness especially rewarding, particularly upon later rereads and rewatches. So, you know, really cool, John, that you were picking up on the same themes that we were in terms of queerness and that colonial, like... Uh, mentality as well and the fact that it's probably a really great reread because you might catch things that you didn't your first time yeah and from what I've heard and understand the uh, miniseries adaptation that came out a few years ago of this really leans into uh, the queer elements of the story and really makes that kind of like I don't want to say the focal point especially because yeah. I haven't watched it but like really makes it much more uh, explicit and like you know that's an element of the story. It's not like an undercurrent at all. So mm-hmm. um, if that's something that you really like about this story, I'm sure the miniseries is worth a watch as well. Yeah. So let's do lightning round. Let's do lightning. So first up, uh, there's a scene that happens only in the book where after all the girls attack Irma Irma, and are dispersed and then it's discovered that uh, the other teacher was hiding in the cupboard. Mm-hmm. Uh, Diane, the French teacher, is like, we're not going to tell Mrs. Appleyard about any of this. <laughs> and the other teacher's like, what? Like, uh, excuse me, the girls acted like very inappropriately. And like, I should tell Mrs. Appleyard and like, <laughs> and Diane is just so fucking over everything at this point. She's yeah. like, I'm, I'm leaving soon. I'm quitting. Uh, so you get this scene where, uh, uh, this is Dora Lumley, the other teacher, uh, the shallow cheeks flushed. How dare you speak to me like that? How dare you? I shall inform Mrs. Appleyard myself of these disgraceful goings on uh, this very night. Diane had picked up an Indian club from the floor. You see this? I have the wrists exceptionally strong, Miss Lumley. Unless you give me a promise before you leave this room that you will not tell one little word of what happened here this afternoon, I will hit you with it very hard indeed. <laughs> and nobody would suspect the French governess, you understand <laughs> what I say. <laughs> You are not fit to be the authority over innocent young girls. I agree. (laughs) I was brought up expecting something much more entertaining. And then she says a bunch of French things I can't pronounce. (laughs) She's like, I will beat the shit out of you. (laughs) She's just like, I will literally bludgeon you to death unless you promise me. And then she's like, okay, I guess so. Okay, that's fine. (laughs) That's a pretty good argument. (laughs) Next for lightning round, I just want to mention... How when Mike comes back from the mountain or from Hanging Rock and is like very sick, we have like several shots of him like in bed and then kind of wandering around. And there's one scene where he's just in his bedroom and there's just a swan in the bedroom that he's staring at. (laughs) And like it's clear that it's not there because like why would a swan be in his bedroom? But it's just like so bizarre. Yeah, it does this a few times. There's another scene later on when he like, thinks he sees Miranda and then like she's not there but a swan is nearby yeah but I do love that one shot it's like inserted in a place where it's not even no it's just weird he's just staring at a swan in his bedroom (laughs) I wish it had just like and then just like attacked him (laughs) um in the scenes in the film when they're searching for the four people that are missing for some reason Oh, the only thing anyone is yelling is Miranda. Yeah. They're like, Miranda! 
or the other ones. Other women that are missing, I guess. <laughs> and apparently it's a thing now where a lot of people who visit Hanging Rock will like climb to the top and shout Miranda. Yeah. From the top. Weird. A little weird. <laughs> <laughs> and then last for lightning round, I just want to mention Minnie and Tom from the book. And they're also in the movie, but they have a more prominent role in the book. They're the two servants who are kind of like sleeping together and they eventually get married. But it's kind of cool because you see them like they're in love. They're hanging out together. And we find out that um, Albert actually ends up giving his old job to Tom. Yeah. And that Tom and Minnie end up like settling down, having a lot of kids, having a good life. And it's funny, too, because in the book, you actually there are hints that Minnie is pregnant. Yeah, I loved that. in the book. She talks about like having a craving for bananas suddenly and having to let out her waistband. Yeah. Yeah. It's like really sweet. They just seem like a really sweet couple and i like them yeah <laughs> and that's it for lightning round thank you so much for listening to this episode uh again thank you to john our patron yes. for being a patron and also suggesting this episode and just a reminder that all of our patrons get access to our bonus episodes they get a ton of extra content and we also prioritize their episode requests so if there's something that you'd like to hear us talk about consider becoming a patron yeah and then we'll have to do it <laughs> we'll be forced to uh yeah you can find us you know find our patreon you can find us on twitter on instagram on facebook if you go to covertocredits.com you can find all those social media links as well as listening to episodes from the website yeah and thank you so much for listening to this episode and we'll see you next time see you next time bye, bye.